Coming to you from the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains, Denver, Colorado, it's The Savage Cast, a Savage Worlds podcast brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Savages. Here are your hosts, Chris Savage Mommy Fox and Christopher Savage Bull Landauer, with special guest host Patrick Nichols. Welcome, Savage Cast listeners. On today's show, we have special guests from overseas, Aaron and Aviv, the creators of Crystal Heart. How's it going, guys? Everything is fine. Everything yes. is good. And thank you for having us. Yeah, we're excited to have you guys on the show. So uh, uh, we're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna dig into the interview here in a second. But I, I have a quick question for all, all everybody on here. What do you guys all think? Half a million dollars. Um, brilliant, brilliant, awesome, amazing, amazing. Not surprising, however, uh, I, I, I wasn't surprised. I think that they weren't surprised as well. They had stretch goals all the way up to half a million dollars. So I think they were, Pinnacle were ready for this. Yeah, I think they were too. Yeah. So, go, so why don't you, what, what, what we always like to start about is just uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. And I'm kind of curious, tell us a little bit about your gaming history. Uh, how did you come to gaming? And, and just give us a little bit of a background for both of you. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. My name is Aviv. I'm an illustrator. I work mainly in um, the tabletop board game role playing uh, industry. Um, how I got into role-playing goes back a while. Actually, I, I, I've read about role-playing game theory before I ever started playing because the internet was available, but friends who role-played weren't. So, And there were loads of websites in Israel for some reason um, digging into role-playing and explaining things about them and, and uh, kind of... Um, theorizing about them. So I knew Lowe's, but I've never played until I met Elan and his friends. Um, and they introduced me to role-playing, to actually role-playing for the first time with a really fun game of um, Warcraft, World of Warcraft, the, the D&D. <laughs> and that was amazing. And the first game I played, and I, I'm really happy that I got into the hobby uh, through these people because Iran and um, pretty much everyone who knows in role-playing really enjoy uh, different kinds of systems. So I got to try loads of different things and didn't just um, do D&D &D for years before trying or, or even learning that there is anything else. So what was your biggest shock going from like the uh, academician side to actually getting the practical role playing? What was the biggest you know, difference between reading about role playing games and then actually getting to play them? I don't think there was much of a shock. It was just that, ooh, this is actually fun. Um, it just, I think there was a lot, a lot more humor and fun when we actually sat down and play than there was in just reading blogs and websites and learning about role playing. Yeah, that's kind of true. I think that's true in general. That even like when you get on the blogs, I think a lot of people complain about their hobbies. You know, on, on the blogs, like they can't complain to their friends. So a lot of hobbies, when you read about them, they seem very much like nitpicky and and a little uh, 
you know, people getting their grudges out. But when you actually sit down the tables that are, you know, and participate in hobbies, yeah, they're a lot more fun than I think people usually let on. So, yeah, absolutely. It's about friends getting together and playing rather than doing something really deep and philosophical most times. The, uh, and so, Aaron, you're the one who's the big recruiter. How did you get into gaming? Uh, when I started, there still wasn't any internet around. Uh, I, I didn't know if it was so young. Um, I started <laughs> with the red box, the D&D red box, like basically everyone. And I've played tons of D&D and Shadowrun and everything that was translated to Hebrew and then everything that wasn't translated to Hebrew because uh, like with many, many other Israeli geeks, I learned a lot of English because I wanted to role play more. Nice. <laughs> and I, th there was no other choice. There was no other way. If I wanted to play Earthdawn, for example, I had to learn English. And Earthdawn, yeah, it's it's a brilliant system that I actually never oh, got I, to I play. I know Earthdawn. Really, I'm, really I'm like a caregiving, exploring fool. I love Earthdawn. Oh, excellent. Oh, you name giver, you. And, <laughs> and, and I think, as like Aviv said, I'm... I was always into role-playing, and I was always into trying new things in role-playing, and I'm very happy that around 2002 I got into the professional side of role-playing and started working as a writer and an editor and a translator, and it happened that later on, thanks to the publisher I worked with, I basically was either the translator or the editor of everything that was translated to Hebrew. Every role-playing game, many board games as well, stuff like that. Because the market in Israel is very, very small. So you really only need a, a one person to do that most of the time. So not only have you cornered the market, you are also a river to your people. Right. Who are the... And, and had probably had plenty of work to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the... Uh... Yeah, but it was a problem because um, that was my thing. I was the only person doing it. And when I stopped doing it, who will do it now? You need someone else. And no one, I didn't mentor anyone. Yeah, yeah, we, we're, we're kind of facing the very something similar, you know, in us and you know, organizing with the role playing. It's like if we don't do the jobs we do, there's no one left else to do them. So, you know, as you take on more responsibilities and, and different roles, it's like we kind of need to not be doing as much of the other stuff. It's like, but who else is gonna do it? Exactly, especially with conventions. I mean, who is going to do that unless we stand up and do it? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, no, that's exactly what we're doing you know, on, on our end, you know, with Fox and I putting more and more energies into helping the rest of the savages get published. It's like, but yeah, how are we going to keep running the conventions and running the clubs? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it definitely is a passion play. So um, give us a little history or tell us what the, the gaming culture is like in Israel and what it's like yeah, in I London. Um, in Israel, it's quite advanced actually the, b mainly because there was a lot of D&D in the beginning and then there was a lot of World of Darkness and there was this clash between playing to get XP and playing to be dramatic and there was such a powerful backlash that they actually uh, th the community at large uh, those people that consider themselves a community, not just people playing at home but those that said we are part of a community we'll discuss role playing games they didn't at all like D&D because it was munchkin-y and stuff like that. And they turned away from it and several years later turned back to it because D&D is actually pretty awesome. Uh, and they realized that. And this wave, this back and forth created a very interesting, I think, 
um, theoretic discussion in Israel, and they had a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, not a lot of which I've seen outside of Israeli, of Hebrew-speaking circles, which is unfortunate because I think everyone should talk more about role-playing games. Uh, there are so many good tools that we are still... It's still a very young hobby. There are so many good tools that we are still developing and everyone should be in the conversation as much as we can so we'll get the best tools and do the best things. Yeah, that's pretty astute. I mean, yeah, very true that the sense that like we're really only starting the second generation of the hobby. I mean, the people who founded it are, you know, just yeah. recently passed, you know, and uh, and we're still in that era where I think there's a lot of hero worship and, you know, the, yes. the, the game is only defined by the few people who did it big, you know, 20 years ago. And there's so there's a lot of, you know, uh, I don't know, rule setting outside of like mechanics, but like the right way and the wrong way to play. And like you said, the community yes. in Israel had the conversation about narrative play versus mechanical play. Um, we, yeah, we have that very similar thing happens in the communities about, you know, it's almost a very different group of people in America who play White Wolf products or KSCM products um, than play D&D or Pathfinder. Right, or even, or even Savage Worlds. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think Savage Worlds is interesting here because one of its main things is, yes, we have crunchy rules. Uh, we're, we're pretty strict, obvious. There are combat options that we can do and stuff like that. But there's also trappings. And it's really up to what we decide here and now. I mean, you said your bolt is fire, then sure. Then it means that when you shoot it into water, then you'll have a minus two. And that's something that we decide now. It's not something that you can find in the book. And how these things interact, the ruling, which is a super important part of, of the game and of every narrative game, is so important and so powerful in the Savage Worlds. And many people that, uh, people that enjoy Pathfinder, and I enjoy Pathfinder, just to be clear, people that enjoy Pathfinder generally do not enjoy this more freeform sort of thing. If what they like in Pathfinder is the very strict obvious way to resolve every situation and there's the other kind of guys that again and i really really enjoy games that are like powered by the apocalypse or fate or the like where there's so much in the air that um it's not that it's not that the rules don't matter they matter so much but there's so much going on in the conversation as they call it that's yeah I can't, I, I really want to have a fighter that's really, really good at fighting. Can I please have that? Can I have a, a fighter that's awesome with, uh, I don't know, two swords? I want to be an awesome two-sword fighter. And you can't really get that in Dungeon World. But you can get that in Savage Worlds and still get all of the narrative fun. Yeah, no, it's very true. And the... Um... It's a free roam. Yeah, it's almost like the. I think where Savage Worlds is going with this new edition is kind of a step towards having narrative structure, which helps out, um, it gives seeds to creativity. So, you know, just to me, sandbox is like a sandbox. It's generic. It's it's very hard to make a sandbox without a lot of imagination going into it and being really good at being on your toes and being improvisational to, to, to look like something else. Yeah, sandbox isn't always really a sandbox. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but you, know, you need enough narrative structure where you know, the game will tell you 
you know, which direction to go. And then you can be very creative and riff off of that. But also I think it's freeing you from the rules. Like, you know, Fox and I are, are, are working on um, bringing Bureau 13 to the modern rule set and, and, yes. one, and looking at the old rule set kind of in the same thing as, as what they did with riffs. You know, you look at these old rule sets from the 80s and there were, you know, uh, almost an infinite number of hit locations in this game. I mean, you, there's like a, like 20 pages in the back of one of the editions that literally has the human body that looks like it went through a sieve or a grater. I mean, you know, the face has like 400 different places you could get hit, like upper right eyebrow oh, no. and, you know, lower right pupil and, you know, center <laughs> nostril. And it's like, that's just not necessary, right? Like that level of crunch and detail just is you're bound by the rules. You're being slowed down by the rules. Whereas I think Savage Worlds has really gotten a great you know position now where there's narrative structures. There's also, you know, a lot of them, the new in, in implementations are, um, they're more freeform. They're, hey, let's do a chase, but we're going to have enough, just enough crunch to, to keep it, you know, structured so it's not all on the GM to come up with every little detail every single second because that can be exhausting. Um you know, but enough enough crunch there that, and enough freedom there to to not be bogged down. Going, oh god, I have to read a fourteen page rule on how to run this. So, right. Mm. So I had a question for you guys. Um, being where you guys are at and starting when you did, how uh, available is this material that you're starting out with? I mean. Uh, former military traveling around, being to libraries and stuff. It's kind of hard to get some what you would think would be some common publications. And to say that you started out in the red box for D and D, how how available was this stuff growing up and getting your group together? Uh, you mean in Israel, back back in the homeland? Yes, sir. Well, not not very much. <laughs> uh, it's. For example, there was basically a single shop for fantasy stuff, geeky, gamey stuff, and it's mostly for video games. Yeah. Uh, there, there were like two at one time, and I had one at one time. Oh, wow. Uh, for two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a lot of stuff in Israel. <laughs> um, and, and, and now there are, I think, maybe three, maybe even four. <laughs> and I think... I think the interesting stuff about the market in Israel, well, first of all, the moment Amazon became a thing or Book Depository became a thing, nothing really mattered because most everyone that's um, old enough and adult and can spend money uh, overseas will just order whatever they want or download the PDF illegally, unfortunately. Yeah, right. But kids, kids can't do that and they can only play in Hebrew. So that's, I think, probably the most interesting thing that happened because we have, I assume, about 10,000 kids, which is, I think, about half of the gaming population in in Israel. And, and don't quote me on these numbers. <laughs> that are playing in um, after-school activities. Wow, that's awesome. By oh, that's excellent. Usually, usually by, by um, individuals. People that just like, I'm running a group at my community, at my uh, kibbutz, I don't know, whatever. Right. And I'm, I'm being paid 50 shekels an hour by every kid and I'll be running. Well, many of them run what's available in Hebrew. So AD&D from 20 years ago, D&D &D 4 
is the latest edition that was translated. Pathfinder I translated two years ago, so they have that as well. Um, that's basically it. <laughs> some of them translate themselves something from English that they like. I really hope they'll run more Savage Worlds, if you ask me, but... Uh, that's amazing. There are a few recent uh, products that have come out specifically um, for children or for teens. Yes. Um, but that's a very, very new thing. It's just recently with uh, crowdfunding, basically, uh, has become available. And it's what you guys said, we are the second generation now. And now that we have so many new kids and the parents want to play something with their kids, that's probably why we have, for example, Little Wizards, which is a game by, I think, Crafty Games, I'm going yeah, to I think you're right, say. yes. I, I was part of the translation. I should know this. <laughs> and it was translated by a dad that wanted to run a game for his kids. And now we have it. Yeah, crowdfunding has made that amazingly possible. And uh, yeah, there, there's a, one of the, the crowdfunding things, I think it just ended this weekend, was a, it's a documentary called, I think, um, like The Dreams in Gary's Basement or yeah, something, something like that. that. Um, where it's basically, oh, right, it, it yes. talks about the history of Gygax. And um, yeah. uh, curious, short question for either of you. Um, you know, America, when, when D&D came out during the 80s, there was kind of a, I think it's a little overstated, but there was definitely this um, kind of a religious panic against the game as being kind yes. of uh, Satan worshiping, and there were uh, chick tracks, uh, click tracks, or whatever. There were you know these kind of pamphlets yes. that this guy yeah. put out, and um, so I think it got more media attention than it deserved. But it was definitely a thing. Was that was that a thing in in Israel or in the UK? No, I, I think in Israel it was never popular enough to become yeah. any kind of panic. It never attracted any attention yeah. by anyone for any reason. Yeah, uh, that, in the UK, as far as far as I know, in in the UK, nothing like this happened. And from what little I know, one of the problems when living in London is that most of your friends are immigrants because but there's ba barely any British person around. <laughs> right. Uh, it's it's really an a city for immigrants, so it's hard for me to say anything concrete. But generally speaking, as far as I know. They looked over from beyond the pond uh, at you guys and said, what is going on there? <laughs> <laughs> I think and then went back refrain. to play Warhammer. There, should, there almost should be an emoji for your phone, you know, for everybody <laughs> in international. Like, what is the U.S. doing today? Like... <laughs> so we met, so we, we we've been kind of mentioning crowdfunding a little bit. So so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what you guys have coming up to Kickstarter, and let's talk a little bit about Crystal Hearts. So give us kind of just what's what's your quick overview of the Crystal Hearts setting? So in Crystal Heart, um, it's a world where everyone's heart is literally made of stone and um, special agents of an organization called Sin have a harness installed in their chest, replacing their own heart where they can insert a crystal which is an artifact from the bygone age. And that crystal grants them um, wonderful superpowers, but also changes their personality in all kinds of quirky ways that are fun to play, fun to role play. Um, their job in this organization is to scour the five lands and basically just find and retrieve more of those yummy, yummy crystals, uh, which they can later install in their own harness 
and completely change the set of powers that they can perform and the set of personality traits that they currently have. So is the is the, the makeup of the game, um, you know, plot wise, is it more players versus environment than player versus NPCs, or um, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys? Um, what, what you know, how do typical games run? I would like to have a combination of both, but it's probably going to be a lot of player versus um, environment. It's one of the reasons, actually, I really like Savage Worlds. It's allow you to do a lot of actiony stuff without any opposition. Just everything is against you. You have to jump across this chasm. You have to climb this wall. You have to avoid this avalanche. Uh, that's that's I, how I see a pretty basic Savage World adventure. So <laughs> that's what I think should happen a lot in Crystal Heart. Yeah, in addition to that, um, when, when crystals are in the wild, they're called feral crystals, and they do all kinds of messed up stuff to the environment around them. So if you have a, a chasm that's, you know, really wide and hard to, uh, to cross, if there's a crystal next to it, maybe there's also um, pink tentacles coming from underneath it, or the ground keeps moving, which makes it even harder to cross. Um, so that adds to that environment trying to kill you. Well, not, not really trying to kill you, but it's just there and it will kill you. That's actually really refreshing. Um, because I think a lot of United States-based games are very adversarial, and there's definitely um, a very a big theme of players versus NPCs, and there's usually almost a almost even a Nazi-esque bad guy. I mean, something is so bad that you just have no moral mm. issues with just obliterating them whenever you know on site. Um, so it's, it's very interesting having a game where you have. Um, it's much more pulpy. I mean, like, you know, that's the thing. That's one of the aspects of oh, pulp yes. that doesn't get played a lot. Um, it's just how much of it, how much of the game can be versus environment versus you know bad guys. I don't think we have a lot of bad guys. I mean, not not Nazi bad guys. We have bad guys, but a lot of the time you'll say, "Well, these are rebels," but maybe I I don't know. Maybe they have a point. I mean, technically, we're not supposed to have them. I'm I'm actually iterating something that happens in our current storyline in the webcomic, uh, where they are rebels and you're not supposed to help them. Uh, there's a framing story for everything. You are agents of an organization and you are being sent into the five lands and you have obligations. Technically, actually, it's a vow. It's a vow hindrance that <laughs> you have to the agent's code. And you are sent into the wild and you have to do some stuff and you have this relationship with everyone you'll meet because you're probably and not an invader but a guest wherever you are but they have to accept you in some way because everyone appreciates sin and most people are afraid of them as well so and also you have sin's reputation on the line whatever you do sin will in some way have to you will have to either report it to sin or get punished for it by sin which is a great way to keep players in check. Um, <laughs> it also replaces uh, my, our um, uh, currency system. We don't use money because I, I don't think a game about powerful crystals and jumping around and, and stuff like that, I, I don't care how many gold pieces I have. Uh, it shouldn't stop me from getting awesome things. Instead, we have requisition, which is similar to the current wealth system that they just released in the Adventure Edition. 
And it's basically what sin thinks you deserve to have. And when you want something, you spend requisition. And when you prove yourself, you'll gain requisition. And that's a way to control, sort of control what you have and how much you have of it. Yeah, so you're not putting, you know, it, it, just, it takes that one layer out and just you get to the game that way. You get to the heart of the game. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I have we a question for you. Very much oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. We also very much advocate a specific style of campaign, which is something that I think not every GMO player are going to accept or want to, but, but we're going to say that this is the ideal form of, a, of not a Savage World game, I don't know, do whatever you do, of a Crystal Heart game, where there's, during your novice and season ranks, when you start the game, you are, we actually call our agents in world novice and seasoned, we use the ranks for the organization, they use the same ranks. When you're novice and seasoned, you are basically railroaded. Uh, there's this adventure, and now you'll have this adventure, and now you'll have this adventure, because Sin sends you on a specific route, one by one, and these are the things you need to do. You might find something interesting along the way, sure, but we tend to skip the actual travel by using the travel rules, the new ones that you can just pick a, a card and something cool happens, and, and let's get to the next point. But then the campaign changes when you become veteran and heroic. You become a free agent, and now you can do whatever you want. And I would want the GM to have in, in their mind the end goal when they begin and put all sorts of clues and uh, uh, things that would make the players want to investigate specific things while they are novice and seasoned and can do it. And then when they are free agents and can do it, they will go ahead and, and investigate those things and end the campaign with a glorious battle against something I don't know. Yeah, no, that sounds really, I like that because I think it, it helps set the tone on how your campaigns are different than other settings. You get enough buy-in with a little bit of railroading at the beginning to you know show off the basics of your system and then you you open the gates when people are you know when they're experienced enough in it to have an idea of how how play works. Um, that's a pretty clever idea. I like that. Yeah. So the question I always like to ask, uh, you know, so you're you're doing this in Savage Worlds. So what made you decide Savage Worlds was the right rule set for your your setting? Uh, Aviv, I think you should explain because. We actually started everything as a webcomic, and we chose Savage World for the webcomic. And then when it became popular, it actually became a game for Savage World. Right, and nice. I have questions for you. But I have questions for you about the webcomic here in a few minutes. Yeah, me too. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Aviv, why did we choose Savage Worlds for the webcomic? So uh, when we decided to make the move from just one-off jokes about board games to uh, creating a story about role-playing games, um, it was really important for us to show the game being played, uh, not just talking about making, uh, talking about creating a story, not about, not just um, showing the story itself. We wanted to show a table with players around it, rolling dice and doing all the things that we do around the table. Um, so our options, if I remember them correctly, uh, were either Savage Worlds, because it's a system that we knew quite well at the time, or uh, things like uh, Fate Core and um, 
uh, what's it called? Something of the apocalypse. No, powered by the apocalypse. We wanted to maybe powered power. We, we thought about Thank making you. a hack based on Dungeon World or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the thing with uh, Fate Core and uh, Powered by the Apocalypse is that it's it's a game where people are telling a story, and like Erlan said before, um, there are rules. But they're not like crunchy, yummy rules. They're just rules that help you tell the story better. And we already have a story we want to tell. We don't want to show people sitting around the table telling the story that we're telling. Um, and Savage Worlds does have that crunchiness and dice rolling and dice exploding, which makes for uh, amazing story bits because... If we want something incredible to happen in the story, we don't have to come up with uh, excuses for how it happens or make it realistic in some way. Well, no, because sometimes around the table, dice explodes and, uh, and uh, something that was completely improbable happens and happens in an amazing way. And that's, I think, a really fun thing to do in a webcomic that that is pulpy and adventuristic and, and super colorful like Crystal Heart is. Um, so Savage Worlds was, was definite. And, and there are also um, a bunch of different mechanics, like bennies. Bennies are super fun to play with in a comic. And um, the interlude mechanic is just... Here's, here's a... a good-looking mechanic, because we can draw cards and actually draw those cards in the webcomic, <laughs> um, and also just have an excuse to tell tiny little one-page stories from the, back, the, the background of our characters. Um, all those things make Savage Worlds just a perfect system to tell a role-playing story with, especially a story like ours, which is supposed to be about adventure and about bigger-than-life superheroes in this fantasy fantasy-esque setting so Aviv, how is storytelling and world building in a graphic format um, different than game mastering well i don't do a lot of game mastering or so playing. i wouldn't or know playing, about the differences um well thankfully with this um with this setting, we had a little bit to go on because we did, we made up this world and this story a while back, like 12 years ago, uh, when we played it with our friends. Um, so there was something, there was a seed already there. And then Elan developed it a lot more for the, for the webcomic. Um, and then the process of, of working together to flesh out the things and visualizing them was loads of fun. Um, the part of um, GMing or role-playing uh, or, or world-building of actually coming up with things out of the blue is not something I've ever been very comfortable with but once there's someone who um, comes up with the ideas like Iran does naturally um, to come up with how they look is that's the part that I love. That's the reason I'm an illustrator. So it's it it was and is a really fun process because every time we there isn't a lot of planning ahead uh, with um, with the webcomic just because of time constraints. Honestly, 
So a lot of the things are kind of, uh, oh, next page we're going to need this thing. Okay, better sketch it really quickly to see how it looks. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of the world has been created that way, and that is a lot of fun. Yeah, that was actually one of, one of my questions, uh, kind of the, the process that you guys use for the webcomic. And let's put this out there. We'll put it out there at the end again. But that webcomic is, is at uptofourplayers.com. So anybody who's listening, go out, take a look at this at the webcomic. You'll get four a, is spelled out. Yeah, four is, but you'll get a great Crystal Hearts uh, feel. So, But that was my question. So is your game currently ongoing? Is it an ongoing weekly game, monthly game? Uh, we we play basically on a weekly basis. We haven't been playing for past month or so because mostly because of the Kickstarter. Also, I've been sick and stuff like that. But uh, what we're playing is is Fifty Fathoms. <laughs> I run Fifty Fathoms for Aviv and my wife and her husband. Um, it's it's been tons of fun. Uh, we don't run Crystal Hearts. <laughs> we we haven't played. I mean, we've played a lot of Crystal Hearts. Uh, some for playtest and some for in convention and a lot of one shots. But we don't play currently a campaign of Crystal Heart. I I write Crystal Heart. I don't want to run it. It's not fun. <laughs> right. I want to run Fifty Fathoms. Fifty Fathoms is fun. Uh, when you write the game, I mean, I my my hobby is where I go to rest my head and have some fun when I don't need to consider and reconsider everything. When I sit down to write something for Crystal Heart. Wait, have I used this before? Is this a thing that is now going to happen again? Who, which of the characters is going to say this? Why are they saying this? Is this crystal? Are, are, am I going to choose these powers for it? Am I sure? Am I sure? So I need to, I need to walk a lot on Crystal Heart. I, uh, I don't currently want to play it. So right now, so basically, it's just it's it, that's the comic itself is is the game within the comic. Yes, yes, which is very important to explain. Uh, we don't roll the dice for what's happening in the comic. I don't write the adventure for what's happening in the comic. It's a story, and we decide everything as a story. It's a story about an adventure, but it's, we're, not, we're not giving the dice any power here. We're not giving the... I don't have players that I ask them. I have all of the characters, and I know what they're going to say. And then I make them say it. And that's and then I make their characters say it. And because we have players and characters and everything. <laughs> so, what what a lovely mess. And uh, no, no one will ever play it. Yes, it's it's, yes, exactly. it's, it's characters inside players inside your head. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah, and one of my favorite parts and about it is we will never, we're never going to release the, the character sheets for these people because they don't have one. They have, they have basic character sheets, but whenever I say that they have a D8 in persuasion or whatever, that's a thing that I'm going to keep, but I'm not going to distribute skill points. Uh, I, I actually did. I actually did when I created the character <laughs> because I wanted to have some basis. But I'm, I don't want to commit to something that then later on some fan will come back and say, wait, wait, wait. But when I look at the character sheet, she doesn't have this and this and this and this. I need her to have this and this <laughs> for story reason, and the story always wins. That's so right. I can't have a character sheet out there that will tell me what to do. Well, and I love that, that little piece of advice you just said for even playing actual games. Story always wins. 
Like that, I think that's Stone a great Stone motto. Cool. That's like that's tattoo worthy. Yeah, um, you know, bumper <laughs> sticker worthy. Put that on a t-shirt. for gaming. Yeah, put it on a t-shirt, right? Like that's what I on a t-shirt. Story always wins because I think that's kind of the thing. <laughs> kind of getting back to what we started with at the very beginning. Some people look at role playing games, and this is a legit you know viewpoint, but I think a lot of us have grown beyond it as a tactical game that can be won or lost, and you mm. should be doing better than your other fellow players, and hopefully beating your GM. Um, but I think most of us, after we had that, you know, we, we can leave chess for chess and we can leave diplomacy for diplomacy. Like let's play, let's role play. And I think for a lot of us, it comes down to, uh, yes, there are certain things about savage worlds that you will remember the mechanics like, Oh, my dice exploded and it was great. But I think, you know, and, and that's, I think speaks to the system being evocative, but I think most of the times when you remember a game and you describe it to someone who wasn't there, or you reminisce with somebody who was there when you played it you talk about the story that happened and you don't really remember, oh, I drew this initiative and, oh, exactly. I did, you know, this many points of damage. Unless it was like, oh, my God, I did 97 points of damage, <laughs> right? Um, you know, but in general, I think you, you remember the story and that's the part that gets people's blood pumping. And uh, so I, I like that. The story always wins. I think we're going we're gonna, to, like, patent that or trademark it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So your Kickstarter. So let's let's uh, make sure that we get this. I want to make sure we get this out there for people. And then I have another another question for you. So, so your Kickstarter for Crystal Hearts. When does that launch? November twenty, which is a Tuesday, which is three days away from when we're recording this. Three days. So yeah. So you know, November twentieth. Get out there and uh, and check out the Kickstarter. You guys did something really cool. For Crystal Hearts, and I want to make sure that I touch on because I find it really interesting. You guys did a starter, basically a, a oh, starter PDF yeah. for Crystal Hearts. Tell us a little bit about that, and where can people get that? Because that's an awesome thing to look at to go. Oh yeah, I'm going to want to back this because it's 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 phenomenally done. The artwork from Aviv is is incredible, right. and it's just really an really in-house. well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, you're so yeah, you're lucky you get to have <laughs> yeah. an artist in house. It's fucking brilliant. That's what it is. <laughs> it is. It is. We're putting that on a t-shirt too. Yeah. <laughs> so to be honest, the, the idea to do a starter set came from uh, Amit Moshe of City of Mist. Um, he is, we're very happy to have him as the producer to our Kickstarter and hopefully later um, with producing all of this. Um, I, when I saw the starter set that he did for City of Mist, which was also really highly produced with beautiful artwork, had everything you needed to do to play a uh, a single one-shot adventure of City of Mist, it was a winner. I immediately wanted that system because having a taste of something that you don't know is the best way, if it's good, is the best way to convince you to get that something. Um, and, it's like and the, yes, the free samples the on the corner. We... <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, so it was really important for us to get that out at least, I think, a month before the kick, the, the Kickstarter itself went up. And I'm really happy that we did. Uh, I think many people who maybe haven't even heard of Crystal Heart before have discovered it through the starter set. And uh, yes, like you said, it helps that, that art is really... Um, handy and and can be produced and you don't need to pay someone else to do it for you and and try to understand your world and your product 
um, when they've only just discovered it. Uh, yeah, no, I've been doing it for like a year and a half, two years, I think, with Crystal Heart. I know what Elan is trying to do. I know what the, the, the game is about. I know what the setting is about. So creating that starter set was a really cool... Um, it was a really cool taste for us to for creating the, the setting book eventually. I also really like that we did make sure that we're going... That, we, that we're having... I really like that we have high production values because I think it explains in a way to the people that uh, read it, this is what we aim for. This is our uh, declaration of intent. This <laughs> is what we see as worth of your time and nothing less. So please invest in the Kickstarter. This is what we're going for. <laughs> I had a question for we, the we illustrator. Um, doing all this illustration, yes. which is absolutely gorgeous, and um, the Thank color you. picks are just phenomenal, and the webcomic is just awesome. Were you inspired by anybody, um, certain artwork, um, doing your deal of the day of the 80s? Is there anybody out there that you mm. just saw a style that was just really phenomenal to you? Because I see you have a – you have uh. a – I now see your artwork, and I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, it's 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 unique. The lines are defined. The shading is just awesome. Well, first, thank you so much. Um, I think my my early beginnings in webcomic were definitely inspired by Mike Krahulik from um, Penny Arcade. Mm. Um, and, and I think that shows more in the earlier stuff. In the, the, the earlier strips of up to four players, which are three panel uh, strips showing characters kind of, you know, talking heads kind of thing. It's definitely changed for Crystal Heart because now we're doing full page comics. Uh, we're doing um, adventure, fantasy, characters and locations. It can't really be that same style. And I think there I definitely had inspiration from Disney movies, um, <laughs> which I adore. I, I've adored since I was a child. Mm. Um, some inspiration from anime, which is also has inspired the setting itself in many ways. Um, and also uh, recent animated TV shows like Steven Universe and uh, Gravity Falls that have uh, this beautiful magical innocent uh look to them but full of detail and full of personality to everything to the backgrounds and to the characters and to props um and, and i'm really trying to draw inspiration from that especially with backgrounds which is something that has never been my strong suit and there are so many places in crystal heart that need drawing so i'm trying to draw that from from everywhere i can so how long does it normally take you to do one strip or, or one comic? Uh, it's about 10 to 12 hours of drawing per page. Wow. I, I don't know. It takes me like 45 minutes to write yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes me. This is what we need. Go do it. The, uh, so this is kind of for both of you because you mentioned like all the places that need art. Um, so I'd say, uh, for Elan, um, describe the five lands and what makes them different. And for Aviv, um, how have you brought those differences and in characters uh, into the art? 
well, we wanted to have five different places where you'll have specific unique themes for the adventures in them. Because I don't think that the interesting thing between two lands is the ruler or, I don't know, the kind of food they eat there. I think it's the type of stories that you get there. So, for example, we have Bogovia, which is the land of Eastern European dumpness, swamp, forest, and downer endings. Grumpy people. Everything. <laughs> oh, yes. Very, exactly. Grumpy people. And you're not going to have fun there. <laughs> this is where to... my ancestors come from. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible place to live, probably. Um, you... You have Fjordstad, which is all about innovation and secrecy and competition, where they have... It's all white and snow and harsh land, and there are only 11 city-states that war with each other, each with their own unique technological advances. It's the place where you can get the med scientists and med engineers and laser rifles and nobles that are also sort of like uh, corporations and dust, industrial espionage and whatever. Yeah, Nokia versus um, Motorola. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, you have Masaya, which is the land of open plains and floating mountains because, sure, why not? And you have the Masayans who are all about, you know, it's a land of freedom. And I, I was very much inspired by a lot of the, the USA where... Um, you have vast tracts of land and beautiful rolling hills and amazing forests and the Native Americans. But I also really like things like, for example, uh, social structure. I, I really like horrible, horrible social structure that restricts you from doing whatever you want. So, yes, they are these people of the land, but also each of the tribes is very structured in the way that you're born into a specific uh, strata of the society and there you will stay and you have your role in society. And they have this conflict between what they claim they are and what they actually are. Um, finally, there's... Ah, finally, there's actually two more. There's the Zingama, which is this jungle nation. It's the biggest one. It's a nation. All of the others are lands. We call them lands because they don't actually have one government. They are a people living in a place. But Zingama are a nation, and there are so many of them. And they are multicultural, sort of, but most of them are Zingamas. And they also pose on each other all the time. Because they are backstabbers and politicians. <laughs> and it's the worst. They are the worst. <laughs> Uh, everyone is the worst when I think about it. Finally, there's the islands, which is where you can throw whatever you want because there are like a thousand islands and islanders are unusual. Every islander is his own or her own person and they do whatever they want. And you have islands with cannibals, because of course, and pirates, because of course, and people that ride whales, because sure, why not? And there are, you can find whatever you want in the islands, which is, by the way, we released um, a request for people to send us speeches for adventures because we want to have some stretch goals and we want new people to write these um, PDFs for the stretch goals. And all of them sent adventures happening in the island <laughs> because, because it's the easiest place to place your adventure. Sure, you come to an island and it has, I don't know, a raging volcano. 
You can't put it in anywhere else. It's the easiest place to just stuck it there. Volcanoes and dinosaurs. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. We, we, we designed a game with Do Your Own Island, too. So we, yeah, we, we don't yeah, need to get the yeah, appeal. We, we, we know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, we did a Design Your, your Island game. <laughs> so, Aviv, um, how did you um, differentiate these, these five different places uh, through the art? So, thankfully, I did not have to draw all the five places yet. Most of the story so far happened in Bogovia. So a lot of the concept art and fleshing out the world has happened only in Bogovia. Um, there's going to be a lot of thinking and uh, designing and sketching when we get to the actual book. But Bogovia is set. <laughs> we know that one. Um, and with, with people from the Five Lands, that's, that's also kind of interesting because our heroes have met pretty much only people from Bogovia. And the other people they've met are fellow sin agents. And when you're a sin agent, agent, um, a lot of what you were is kind of left behind. And I think you're more a sin agent than anything else. It depends on who you are, of course. But um, Contessa, the Zingamayan sin agent that they know, I don't know if she represents Zingamayans. In some ways, she does, of course. But she's mostly... A sin agent and mostly a rival, a uh, years-long rival of our group. Um, so it will be interesting to uh, very soon, hopefully, once if if and when the Kickstarter is successful, to start delving into all those places and all those people and all those um, different castes in in their social structure and 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 start to flesh out how they look and um, how they behave as, as far as the art is concerned. Um, it's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be awesome. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So here's a crunch question. How did you guys handle the swapping in and out of crystals and the personality cues and powers that went along with that uh, mechanically in the game uh, with the system? There were several iterations of this, and actually we, we went through them as the webcomic, uh, through, the, through the webcomic, so you can actually see the, f the first iteration in the webcomic, and then Nadav, the GM, explains that he wants it differently after we decided we want it differently. <laughs> and these days, uh, a crystal is a collection of several things. First, it has a theme, which is the trappings. It's what the crystal is about. Second, it has a disposition which is basically a hindrance or maybe a collection of hindrances. And usually they are mental hindrances, things like quirk or habits, but they can also be physical hindrances if there's a good explanation. Like, for example, it will be hard to explain why you lose a leg when you have a crystal, but it might be possible to explain why you are um, walking slower than usual. Uh, maybe you take your time, maybe you're heavier, maybe you feel heavier. It, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it super matters, but it's <laughs> per theme, per crystal. Each is judged on its own merits and flaws. And then you have the powers. The basic power is the thing that the crystal always gives you. When you slot it, you now have this. And so it's usually a passive thing. It's something like uh, an, an increased die in strength or boosted die in throwing. 
or an edge or all of these. It really depends on the power level of the crystal. Crystals are also separated to power levels in five ranks like uh, agents. And the difference between ranks, by the way, uh, comes into account when you roll your crystal channeling, crystal channeling check, which is the arcane background that we use. And if you are higher than the crystal's level uh, rank, sorry, uh, you'll get a bonus. If you are lower, then you'll get uh, a negative modifier. So, uh, ah, wait, we haven't finished. You also have powers. And these are literal powers that we've taken from the book and always change them. It's really important that you don't have bolts. You'll have, um, you punch things from afar with your um, shadowy fist. Nice. And because it, it, the trappings are really important with each crystal. Um, you can't just say, yeah, sure, pummel. No, why do you pummel? How do you pummel? And in what way is this pummel different? Uh, we have a lot of effects that, for example, usually have a small burst template in smarts range, we say, no, they are around you. They, they erupt from you, for example. Or we have an armor, and armor usually says, yeah, if you succeed with a raise, you'll get plus four instead of plus two. And we say, no, you can't. It's always plus two for this and this reason, because this armor is not a force field. It, uh, I don't know, makes your skin like a bark of a tree, and a tree will never become as strong as metal, whatever. Uh, everything has to go back and connect with the dream. And right, um, and right and now, what you're doing in the current the current uh, comics really shows that good examples of that, and especially with the feral crystal that's being used right mm. now. I don't want to give a lot away because I want people to go out and read it, but it's really interesting on what's happening right now with that feral crystal that's been slotted. Um, feral crystals, by the way, break all the rules. So <laughs> as, as, while, a fer while a crystal is outside of a person, while it's in the land, it's for the GM to decide whatever they want to do with it. It can do whatever as long as it's consistent. So if this and that crystal raises uh, the dead or whatever, then it can't also shoot fireballs at you. Um, but it can be a very simple crystal, very... Uh, a crystal that won't allow you to raise the dead when you suck at it. It will maybe allow you to sense the death or maybe allow you to help people cross when they are already um, very close to the thresholds of death. But when it's in the wild, it's an adventure hook. It's something for the GM to use to have fun. So, yeah, whatever. <laughs> That's a great idea. That's brilliant. Yeah, so here's a question, uh, totally off the wall, but I think you guys make a great pair, like the, the GM and the artist and totally. kind of the ideas. So how did you guys meet? It was years ago, <laughs> um, short time after I left the army, because in Israel, most everyone needs to go through the army for several years. And that's a horrible time for role players, because when do you get the time to play when <laughs> you're in the army? I had to find a group, and I found a group. <laughs> and we played D&D. And D&D 3rd, it was around 2001. It's just when D&D 3rd was uh, older age. And we wanted to create some stuff for D&D 3rd, our own stuff. And we wanted it to be very professional. I worked with a person called Ben Shalom, who is amazing. He's currently, these days, he's a lawyer. He was and always is a rules lawyer, and it was only natural <laughs> for him to become an actual one. 
He's playing to type. He... Uh, completely <laughs> so. And he, he has all of the bonuses. And he <laughs> was the person behind what later became the Goblin Industry. That's how we called it. And we wanted it to be high class and good stuff. So when we saw a fantasy comic in Hebrew, we were amazed. It was the first one. And someone is actually making a comic and about fantasy and in Hebrew. And we wanted the artist to help us in our stuff. Am I right, Aviv? Uh, that, that is right. And by the way, the army is a terrible place to do comics in as well. <laughs> no time at all. See, in America, I think it's the uh, exact opposite. Like, the funny thing is a lot of troops have a lot of downtime. Yeah, I did and, most of my gaming when mm, I was overseas. Yeah, so the, the, the gaming becomes a, a big thing. And, and, and one of our in-house artists, um, also a veteran, also a female, um, developed her, her artistic skill while in the military between, you know, active duty stuff. Um, so it's kind of funny, the, the difference between the two. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, I started, uh, I worked with... a. a a different Iran, Iran Aziani. Um, he was the writer and inker, and I was the penciler and colorist. And we actually printed and published several comic books in Israel uh, set in a fantasy world. Um, and I started doing it in high school, um, and it kind of continued going after in the army and slightly after that as well. And uh, I was, as I said, into the, the whole role-playing theory scene on, on the internet uh, at the time. And I heard about these guys, the Goblin Industry. They did all kinds of things for role-playing games, and they seemed nice. So we agreed to meet them and, uh, and chat about how we could work together. And uh, thus formed a beautiful friendship. And I should note, Aviv never played Risk or Settlers of Catan by the time we met her. And we were amazed. So we said, how about you come along one time and we'll play Risk and Settlers of Catan. And she did. And then we said, also there's this thing, role-playing games. <laughs> so and, the Settlers uh, of Catan drug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, that's basically it. And we started working um, creatively together a few years later for when I was an editor for an Israeli website about video games. Uh, we we wanted to have a webcomic, a weekly webcomic, and Aviv and I started working then, I think, which was the first time we actually create things together. That's fantastic. I think so, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The uh, gaming bringing people together on all levels. The um, yeah. So are, are Nadav, sure. Rotom, Guy, and Lily real people, or are they amalgamations of friends, or are they entirely in, of your mind? They're uh, inspired by reality. When we began, when we started the, the webcomic, we had four players. We wanted to have four players, uh, or at least up to. And we wanted different personalities, and it was very easy to modulate them on us. Uh, me and my wife, uh, Nadav and Lily, and Aviv and uh, Ev, her husband, um, Rotem and Guy. Uh, since then, I've been, I've been writing them for three years now. They are different people. They are exaggerated, of course, not very much exaggerated because I don't think it would be that fun to see a caricature playing. I mean, Lily is, I think, a player that we all know. I was about I to say, we have a Lily in our gaming group right now. Every time I see yes. how she plays, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's Lily. 
<laughs> I, I don't think she's a caricature. I think she's an actual person. <laughs> um, she, she's, like, she's like an actual. She's not actually a actual person. But she's so much like my wife that my wife thinks that she is a tribute. Uh, which uh, and and claims it's a romantic thing and i would take these points sure why not <laughs> um but but i think that by now they are no longer real i mean when i think about what guy will say i don't think what will Leviathan say i think about what would this person who is very much into crunchy rules and gaming the system and really loves Rotem and thinks about his work and life, whatever, and he's here mostly to have some fun. What would he think about this situation? I just know him enough to, to look at him as his own person. Yeah, it sounds like something my, my dad, my dad's written uh, a couple novels and he said the same thing. That at a certain point, the characters become real people and you're no longer writing them. You're just channeling them. Like they're going to say what they're going to say and you're just writing it down. And they're so real enough that, you know, the, your, your effort, the effort of like, Oh, what, you know, asking those questions kind of fades and it's, Oh no, I, this is obvious what they're going to do. This is how the story is yeah. going to go. And I, I didn't plan it this way, but, you know, the characters are dra- dragged it this way. So um, it's, an, it's an interesting bit of, of world building. It's, they think a little bit different than role playing in the sense that, you know, or maybe maybe it's the same as role playing, except you have more people involved where you, you, you build your character. And then if you're good at your character and not just at your it's yourself and what you what you as a player want to get out of it, you know, you kind of let your character lead the way. So. As long as you keep the motivations, what does this person want to achieve now? And some concepts, some um, ideals that they have in the back of their mind that guide them, even if they are unaware of all of them, but like two or three, that's how I play my characters most of the time. And that's how I run these or write these characters. Um, This works very well for me. Yeah, I think the NPCs... I'm an underachiever. I think the NBCs are really interesting as well. The guys <coughs> throughout the story. Right? But the Macintosh character was pretty interesting. Uh, Mac is not an NPC. He's a PC. Um, Mac is a guy's character. And he started like what Guy would do. Guy created a character. He spent some points. He wanted to be an awesome engineer. He spent points in repair and stuff like that. He had no idea how he looks like because that was not a problem. That was not something he thought about when creating the character. It wasn't important. Uh, He he had no idea about Macintosh's background. He rolled in some table somewhere to find the name Macintosh. It's not (laughs) something that he really cared about. (laughs) So the second page is us, uh, them, sorry, (laughs) us seeing them creating uh, Macintosh's appearance as they decide how to interpret the, the mechanics and make them into a person. Um, of, of course, that's not how it actually went. Aviv created the character Macintosh, the, the art for him, and then we went back and deci- re- remade him. Uh, anyway. Yeah, deconstructed <laughs> him for comedic effect, yes. Sure. Yes. Sure, exactly. Well, and that's, that's very much like world building in a sense, where I, I think a lot of us know where we want to get um, with an idea, and then you realize, oh wait, I, this has to be plausible, or um, we need to go on a little journey before we get there. And you do you deconstruct things um, because that's how you need to present it to the players first, versus 
Um, you know, like we're, we're working on a game SWAT. You know, you guys are putting out um, the Crystal Heart Jumpstart, and Fox and I are working uh, hard and heavy on our SWAT. Um, and and mm. you know, SWAT started as an idea that was almost a destination. Like, oh, what if you had you know cops? The TV show meets Lord of the Rings. Um, and then, so that's your destination. And now, now we're in the stage of, wait a minute, we need a little bit of backstory here. Like, how does this evolve? How did television develop in a, um, a medieval <laughs> fantasy world? world. Fantasy <laughs> world. And, and oh, wait, what, how do they do cameras? Are cameras magical? Are they, you know, technological? Um, do we not care? You know, and, and, and so you, you start having to go back and answer the, like, origins of man questions, um, even though you want to get to the sword fight. You know, you're kind of like, well, were we a tadpole first? Or, you know, and it, it, is, it is very fun, but it's also very, uh, it's an interesting bit of, of deconstructive building. You're, you're trying to make sense of things or explain things, and you don't have to do everything that way, but um, you know, it, it is it is a fun bit of uh, storytelling going back and um, trying to do origins and um, you know uh, build up to a, a final big punchline or a big effect. So, sure. So, if you know how something came to be, um, you can consistently portray it and know what will come out of it later. And we went through several iterations when to decide, for example, how to not only how crystals work mechanically, but also uh, how do you actually get a crystal inside a person? Now, now we have a harness, but originally we had people that can just take their heart out and insert a new one. We <laughs> Indiana never Jones about style. That <laughs> mechanical thing. Yes, yes, it was weird. And I'm happy that we're not there anymore. We're getting close to our time. So uh, we know where to find you online. That's up to four players.com. Right, so we'll include a link to your Kickstarter. Um, where can people find you in person? What next convention are you guys going to actually be at? Uh, well, the next convention is going to be Dragon Meat in the UK. That's uh, the 1st of December, which is really, really soon. Oh, gosh. Um, uh, but yeah, we mostly do. We, at this point, we only do conventions in the UK. Uh, so Dragon Meat and MCM, which is in May and October. Um, but we are available mostly online. We're happy to chat. I'm at Aviv Or on Twitter. And I'm at N-N-E-S-K. N-E-S-K. <laughs> and we're also at Up to Four Players on, on Up to Four Players on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google Plus. Um, we have a Discord channel. We're mm. all over. Just just look for us. Yeah, and if people drop their email in the form, it's right on your page. They can get the uh, quick start rules, the jump starts. Indeed. You can also download them from Drive Through RPG if you want to. Yep. Yeah, and one more thing, I want to make sure that that I that we let people know because I don't know if a lot of people know. Uh, but I want to let people know that about your, your you have a podcast of, as well called On the Shoulders of Dwarves. So, guys, go check that out. You can find it on on iTunes. That's where I found it. Uh, so go check it out. It's it's a great podcast, and it's not just Savage Worlds related, right? You guys just you pick a topic and you just kind of riff on that topic. Indeed, it's uh, me and my friend uh, Uri Lifshitz. We've been running it in Hebrew since 2012. It's the longest running RPG podcast in Hebrew have, by far and we've turned to English because we decided uh, we should we should have a bigger audience we want more people to talk to and we also want to practice our accents so we switched to English and yeah dwarfcast.net yeah very very good so yeah I wanted to make sure we got that out there well Aran and Aviv thank you guys so much for taking time with us 
really excited about Crystal Hearts. I'm excited to look look at it. Excited to see the Kickstarter. Excited to get some play in. You know, I, I think this might be something that I you know to run some one shots at some conventions over here uh, in Colorado. So I'm really really excited. So thanks so much for coming on and, and spending some time with us. Yeah, best of luck on the Kickstarter, and, and we're excited that you guys are going to be the first jumpstart from Pinnacle that they're going to put out. So congratulations on all front, and best wishes on the Kickstarter, guys and gals. Thank you so much, and thank you for having us. It was really fun. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Cheers. Take it easy.